Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about uncle versus nephew, Emperor Chengzu of the Ming. In our recent episode on the origins of the spoken language we call Mandarin, I mentioned how the emergence of Mandarin was inextricably tied up with the city of Beijing. Specifically, the historical happenstances that led to the choice of that city as China's capital starting in the Middle Ages. I mentioned how the original choice was really made by the Mongols when they invaded from the north. And when the Han Chinese overthrew the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, and established the Ming Dynasty, they initially moved the capital south to Nanjing. This was in 1368. A few decades later, though, the Ming Dynasty relocated its capital back to Beijing. With the subsequent Qing Dynasty also choosing to stick to Beijing, this decision solidified that city's role as China's capital for most of the last 800 years. But what happened in the late 14th century? What caused the Ming regime to move back to Beijing, a city at the northern edge of the Ming Empire and vulnerable to attacks from the north? Why didn't they stick to the perfectly serviceable capital of Nanjing much farther to the south, and for that reason, much more secure? I promised during the Mandarin episode that we will tell the story at some point. And it's a story that, like so many great stories, is ultimately about family, about fathers and sons and grandsons, about uncles and nephews and cousins. And a story that, in the long run, not only helped to determine the course of Chinese history, but even the language that we now speak. So, to set the stage, let's briefly talk about the founding of the Ming Dynasty. The famous founder of the Ming I say famous, particularly because his name, his personal name, that is, was one of a relatively small proportion of Chinese emperors' names that we all knew even as children. And that name was Zhu Yuanzhang. Zhu Yuanzhang was born in 1328 into the Mongol-ruled Yuan dynasty. And he was born into an impoverished peasant family. At 25, Zhu Yuanzhang joined a rebellion against the Mongols. After years of fighting, the peasant boy rose higher than anyone ever expected, becoming the leader of all the rebels and overthrowing the once invincible Mongols to become, at age 39, the first emperor of the Ming dynasty. And he went on to rule China for over 30 years, dying on June 24th, 
1398, becoming one of the great world historical individuals in the annals of Chinese history. Upon his death, however, the Ming government fell into a state of unease over the issue of succession. Back in 1355, still a rebel and a wanted man under the Mongol Yuan regime, Zhu Yuanzhang had a son born to him, his firstborn, named Zhu Biao. Upon becoming emperor in 1368, Zhu Yuanzhang named his firstborn son the crown prince, as he was supposed to do under the general principle of primogeniture. In the meantime, Zhu Yuanzhang went on to have 25 more sons, and he gave large fiefdoms to all 25 of his sons who weren't the crown prince to rule over. Doing so helped to shore up the power of his own family, the Zhu clan, and also delegated military responsibilities to the local princes. In particular, nine of the princes were given fiefdoms along Ming China's northern border, charged with guarding the border against Mongol incursions, these nine held greater responsibilities than their siblings and commanded correspondingly larger military forces. Meanwhile, in the capital, Nanjing, Zhu Biao proved to be an excellent crown prince. Though he often disagreed with his father, this proved to be a good thing, as he exercised a moderating influence on Zhu Yuanzhang, who could be quite harsh with subordinates. Starting in 1378, all imperial business went to the crown prince first, before being escalated to the emperor. Sadly, Zhu Biao, the competent crown prince, fell ill and died in 1392, aged 36. Zhu Yuanzhang was inconsolable. Even after the customary mourning period had ended, the emperor refused to stop wearing funeral clothes. And because he so loved his firstborn son, Zhu Yuanzhang at this time chose not to name any of his other 25 sons as the new crown prince. Instead, he named his 14-year-old grandson, Zhu Biao's son, as the new crown prince and the successor to the empire. Six years later, in 1398, Zhu Yuanzhang himself died, and the now 20-year-old grandson acceded to the throne as Emperor Jianwen. Perhaps unsurprisingly, his uncles, the other 25 princes ruling over their individual fiefdoms, were none too pleased about this development. And Zhu Yuanzhang during his reign had foreseen two alternative problems. One was that the imperial court could be captured by a manipulative minister 
or a cabal of ministers, who could gain de facto power over the emperor. The second was that the princes in their fiefdoms could grow ambitious enough to try to challenge the center. Zhu Enzhang thought that the two problems could offset each other. If the emperor in the capital felt threatened by any of his ministers, he could call the peripheral princes to march into the capital to restore his power. If, on the other hand, the peripheral princes challenged the center, then the emperor had the authority to strip them of their fiefdoms. Soon after his accession, the Jianwen emperor felt that he rather suffered from the second problem. All the princes in their fiefdoms were his uncles and in mature middle age, whereas he, who was trying to boss them around, was their young and untested nephew. Even upon his grandfather Zhu Yanzhang's death, he was already afraid of his uncles. He ordered them not to come to the capital for the funeral, for fear that they might bring an army with them. One of his uncles, in particular, Zhu Di, the prince of Yan, whose fiefdom was the area around Beijing, had already left to travel to the capital. Emperor Jianwen ordered Zhu Di to turn back. Then, one by one, he began to abolish his uncle's fiefdoms. He actually considered starting with none other than Zhu Di, the prince of Yan, the most powerful of the princes. But the prince of Yan was accomplished and esteemed, and one of Jianwen's advisors convinced him that starting with the most respected of princes might turn public opinion against this process of abolishing the fiefdoms. So Jianwen started with those princes he could more easily find fault with, taking down nine of his uncles in quick succession and demoting them to the rank of commoners. One of his uncles, the prince of Xiang, committed suicide by self-immolation rather than suffer the insult. Several other uncles ended up under arrest. By the end of 1398 and the beginning of 1399, the writing was on the wall for the surviving imperial uncles. Their nephew was out to get them. And they naturally gravitated toward the natural leader among them, the most powerful of them all, Zhu Di, the prince of Yan. And Jianwen and his people could see it too. So they were wary of Zhu Di. And Jianwen reassigned some troops previously commanded by Zhu Di to other posts to weaken him. At this time, three of Zhu Di's sons, so Jianwen's cousins, were actually in the capital. Zhu Di pretended to be sick so as to have an excuse to call them home. Then, 
Judy pretended to have a mental breakdown. Again, to try to buy time and to allay suspicions. But a member of his staff betrayed him and secretly wrote to the court to inform Emperor Tianwen that the Prince of Yan was, in fact, quite well in both body and mind. Now Emperor Tianwen knew that his uncle Zhu Di harbored thoughts of rebellion. So he ordered his people to go to Beijing to arrest that man. Betrayals, though, seemed to come in pairs. And now someone else betrayed to the Prince of Yan that the Imperials were coming to get him. Zhu Di was ready for them. And he arrested and killed the people who had come to arrest him. Now, in August 1399, the Prince of Yen raised the banner of rebellion. Except he didn't call it a rebellion. Remember how the founding emperor, Zhu Yuanzhang, had provided for both the possibility of the emperor abolishing fiefdoms and the enfeefed princes coming to the rescue of the emperor in the capital. So now the prince of Yen claimed that ministers next to his nephew had taken control of the throne and were trying to exterminate the Zhu family so that the princes, pursuant to their father's instructions, now had the right to come into the capital to rescue the emperor. We don't need to do a blow-by-blow of the civil war that ensued. Suffice to say that the war lasted about three years, until July 1402. And although the court of Jianwen, being the central government, initially held a distinct advantage in numbers and resources, Jianwen made the mistake of entrusting a general, and actually also an imperial cousin, named Li Qinglong, with the bulk of his army, some half a million men. Zhu Di repeatedly defeated Li Qinglong until almost the entirety of that army was lost. And the civil war ended with the northern forces of Zhu Di marching into the capital, Nanjing. On June 17, 1402, Zhu Di officially claimed the throne, acceding as Emperor Yong'e, also known as the Chengzu Emperor. And Chengzu of the Ming went on to rule for 22 years until 1424, becoming one of the more influential emperors in Chinese history. Because he had won the throne through rebellion, he was suspicious of the people of the south, the people around the capital, Nanjing, and preferred his old city, Beijing. Although he would not formally move the capital to Beijing until 1421, already starting in 1406, he started building palaces and other structures in Beijing, including his own 
eventual tomb, sending the unmistakable signal of his intention to relocate. The palaces he built, by the way, they are what we now know as the Forbidden City. And famously, Emperor Yongle dispatched Zheng He, the eunuch admiral, on his grand voyages to distant corners of the world, reaching East Africa. Zheng He's voyages today serve as a kind of mascot of Chinese foreign policy, with the contemporary government claiming that they're only engaging in peaceful diplomacy, as Zheng He had done. Whether that's true or not is up for debate and a matter of opinion. But one of the great mysteries of the Chinese history hung over Yongle's reign. That was the fate of his nephew, the Jianwen Emperor. See, when in 1402, the armies of the north marched into Nanjing, Jianwen set fire to his own palace. The fire killed his wife, Empress Ma. But after the fire died down, and the soldiers picked over the charred ruins, they couldn't find Jianwen's body, nor that of his son. They disappeared. Some say they escaped through an underground passage. Some say that Jianwen became a Buddhist monk and lived out his life in quiet seclusion. Zhu Di, now the Yongle Emperor, announced his nephew's death and held a funeral for him, despite not having a body to inter and not having confirmation that he really died. Supposedly, although it is surely a reasonable supposition, Yongle spent years searching for his lost nephew and rival, sending agents to every corner of his empire. If Jianwen remained alive, then he continued to threaten the legitimacy of Yongle's rule. Some believe that Emperor Yongle even searched beyond the borders of China. Some say that the eunuch admiral's voyages across the oceans to as far as Africa were an attempt to ascertain Jianwen's whereabouts on the surface of the earth. Presumably, Yongle never found his nephew, although we can perhaps imagine a scenario in which Yongle found him after many years of searching, after both men were much older, and Jianwen was by now a monk with no further political ambitions. We can imagine that perhaps under such circumstances, Yongle might have quietly allowed his nephew to live out his remaining days in his monastery. As it stands, we have no definitive answer. In 1441, a monk traveling around southern China claimed to be Jianwen, but he was proven to be a pretender and later died in prison. 
In 2008, a tomb was discovered in the southern province of Fujian, that was marked as the tomb of a monk. But the monk, some suspected, was the former Jianwen Emperor. Later research, though, seemed to disprove this hypothesis. So that's the Game of Thrones style story, that explains how. A family drama led to the relocation of the Chinese capital back to Beijing, an event that substantially shaped Chinese history to come. An event that continues to shape Chinese politics, language, and identity to this day. This has been M O D G. Thank you. For listening.